It's been almost exactly 10 years since my wife hurt herself on the job first time, which led to uh, a whole bunch of things. Kay's situation has gone from oops to uh-oh to oh my God to holy. And it's still there. I mean, she still can't walk from the original surgery. She's wheelchair bound, doesn't get out very much, is on dialysis now because her kidneys failed. And I've been the guy who's been there all that time. And I was just putting so much pressure on myself. And so finally, one of the guys, a good buddy, called me at home and he said, we are going to get you a Stephen minister. He knew all that story. And he said, we're going to get you a Stephen minister. And I said, well, it's time. It's time. My Stephen minister is just a little bit older than I. And sometimes when, when we're together, I, I have to say, even to him, you know, we're just like two old farts sitting around drinking coffee on a Wednesday morning. It's just so easy to be with him. He, he's just so tuned in to what I'm doing that he knows the right questions. He never suggests anything. He's not there to, he's not there to tell me what to do. He's there to get me to talk to myself until I discover what is necessary. And I can tell him anything. He listens to anything. He listens to the good stuff. He listens to the bad stuff. And he's also very happy about the successes that I've had along the way. I can't wait to tell him about some things. So it's, it's been a lot of pressure. But my Stephen minister has just walked me through it, talked me through it, questioned me through it. And I'm surviving very nicely. I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Trinity for caring enough, the people that were caring enough to literally put a Stephen minister in my back pocket because I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for that. So I, I give thanks every day. In fact, my, my connection with the church now is I, I don't go to worship to take, I go to give. I, I have gotten so much from the church, so much through the, my Stephen minister, that I go to give it all back, or give us back as much of it as I possibly can every Sunday morning. This, this relationship with the Stephen minister is about you and God and, and getting you through the next period. And I'm very proud to say I have a Stephen minister. If you're under anything like the pressure that I was under then, wouldn't you like to be where I am now? You can, you can get there if you take on a Stephen minister. But you can't have the one that I have. Good morning. I'm JR, one of the pastors here at Cedar Hills, and I want to invite you to turn around to the person seated next to you and say, I'm glad you're here this morning. One of the things that we highly value at Cedar Hills are people and relationships and looking for ways to be intentionally connected with one another. This clip that you just saw with Jim telling you a portion of his life story represents one of the ministries that we have at Cedar Hills. 
So if you're in a situation similar to that, or you have a friend, you know somebody who's in a situation like that, one of the ways that you can get a Stevens minister here at Cedar Hills is to simply call the office, talk to one of us pastors, and we'll refer, refer you to the team leads, and they'll see to it that a Stephen Stephen minister is assigned to you. You know, we don't get through life alone, do we? And this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to grab those and turn with me to John chapter 16. And as you're turning there, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, I'm going to try to help us look at how God's family provides care one to another and still finds the ability to rejoice even when things aren't always good or even when things turn out in such a way that we wish that they hadn't have. Uh, So if you have your Bible, look with me to John 16. And so while you're turning there, I'm going to say just a couple of other things to set this up. Now, I've been reading this passage of Scripture for a couple of months now. And I find it to be, for me, a very moody passage of Scripture because it identifies many of the bottom-of-barrel type emotions that all of us experience when we go through this side of life. Things like pain. Things like loss and tragedy. This week, I got a telephone call from my mom. Her, her last living immediate relative, is just her, her oldest brother, has just been sent to hospice. We never know what the next hour in our life is going to entail. When some of those that we've lived life the closest with and perhaps have experienced love with most intimately, we lose. And things like pain and loss and tragedy and, and then the emotional struggle that comes with really trying to get something that you want. But being left up with an incomplete understanding like a picture that's left undone. Not to mention things like inexpressible grief and loneliness and rejection and betrayal, just to name a few. And when I read this passage of Scripture, and here in just a moment, we're going to read this lengthy passage together, I want you to see if you can identify some of these emotions in the lives of these disciples when you acquire an understanding of just exactly what it is that they're going through. You know, one of the things that we've said in this series is that these teachings in John 13 through the 17th chapter contain Jesus' last conversations with his disciples. These are his final words. And we've talked about how important it is when an individual finds themselves in that position in life, when life on this side is coming to a close, how it's important for people to draw those that are the closest to them to have the final conversations, to have those crucial conversations. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. So in John chapter 16, I'm going to start and I'm going to read verses 16 all the way through 33. So listen to these words of our Lord. Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he he says to us? In a little while... You will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said this to them. He 
Is this what you are asking yourselves, he said? What I meant by saying, in a little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me for truly, truly, I say unto you that whatever you ask of me in my father's name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. And then Jesus said in verse 25, he said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and you don't need anyone to question you. This is why, I believe, this is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. This is our focus verse. Jesus said, I've said these things to you, that in me, everybody say, in me, you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. May the Lord Jesus bless the reading of this truth to our hearts. This is a moody passage of Scripture, isn't it? You know, one of the areas that the church, I think, has struggled with over the years is this internal longing and desire to to live in and to create this perfect Christian community. And uh, I'm talking about this place where God is allowed to be God, where He's always leading us, where He's always guiding us, where He's always comforting us, and where He comes to live in us. But in the meantime, everybody say, in the meantime. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In the meantime, when we're trying to create this community where we're always experiencing God, we have to deal with the realities of life on this side of eternity. And with that comes tragedy and pain and loss and suffering and heartache and it just hurts. There's this deep longing for this kind of life to be experienced in the midst of loving fellowship though, isn't it? God gives us glimpses of His presence. We, we get to experience Him. There are times in our lives when we experience an unbelievable depth of unity an undefinable experience with peace that just defies all natural understanding. If you've ever had that in your life, just let me just raise your hand. Yeah, a number of them. Sometimes things that are just, it just escapes 
the ability for us to naturally explain them. And even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think that probably most people, just from my limited experience, whether they're a Christian or not, have a fantasy or dream, maybe religious, maybe not, of a life that's better than this. That life can be improved, that life can be better, that maybe or maybe not there's something on the other side. I believe that deep down inside every human heart is the desire to experience this kind of picture that Jesus paints with his words. A place in eternity that he's preparing for us. But in the meantime, everybody say in the meantime, life can be rough. It can be so brutal, it can be so unfair and so unassuming, especially when you're a Christian because you know how important it is to try to remain in Him and abide in the vine and try to create this community that's always fostering this love and providing this care and walking and demonstrating this kind of peace. And then the uncertainties of life, all that stuff that happens in the meantime, hits you. And it hurts. It takes painstaking effort on our part sometimes to strive, to seek, to walk in obedience in the footsteps of Jesus. That's when you need a friend like Jim had and Stephen's minister to come alongside of you. That's why I had you turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad to see you here this morning. Because none of us get through life alone. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to do Christianity on your own, I'm here to tell you that it was never designed to be lived that way. That we're designed to be connected to one another. To have men and women of faith who genuinely love us, develop relationships with us to such a point to where they're invited to speak truth into our lives and come alongside of us and walk with us to provide sound counsel. To put a loving arm around us and just to tap on the shoulder and say, Hey, you were in my prayers this morning. And then there are the other times in life when life's easier. I mean, we're abiding in the vine and God feels present. His love is in the air. We're full of life. We're full of vision. We're full of passion. And when things like that happen, we begin to try to formulate things and we try to capture and protect these experiences of, of, of abiding in this anointed presence of God. In fact, so much so that groups throughout history have made great efforts to attempt to bottle something that could never be bottled. The love of God. His presence. It's, it's never meant to be bottled. It's meant to be experienced. He came so we could experience Him and share this truth. I'd like to say something else. He's, he's not something. He's someone who's to be shared with the world. And to get just a little bit personal, this means our world too. In an attempt to live this out, groups have gone into hiding. They've had these great experiences. They've discovered these truths. And in this attempt to bottle them, some groups have gone into hiding. Others have formed separate communities. Some have withdrawn from culture, even Christian cultures that they felt were polluted with worldly values. One of the things that Jesus makes clear in these teachings in John 13 through 17 is that we're sent out 
into the world. And I want to say this because I do believe that there are times in our lives when we need to retreat and withdraw for a season to be renewed so that our hearts can find clarity and we can be focused on discerning what God's will is, but we always re-engage the mission. We always, re- we always re-engage people and the mission. Even in the book of Acts, when the early church met and had everything in common, God uses the persecutions of the religious leaders to cause the despair to make everybody who came to Jerusalem and wanted to stay and didn't want to go home, He made them go back home. And that became responsible for the spreading of the gospel to the entire known world at the time. Jesus' prayer. Right after this conversation in John 17, was not that we be taken out of the world, but that we be protected from the evil one who's in the world. And he prayed that we be sent into the world the same way that he'd be sent into the world. And you can say what you want about things like peace and love and unity, but if the peace and love and unity of which is spoken by whatever agent, if it doesn't bring the power of God to bear in the midst of human suffering, then it's probably not the peace and the love and the unity of which Jesus speaks. And when you read these words in John, what you don't hear is Jesus encouraging us to withdraw. He's getting ready to leave them. He's told them several times before. Now he's just telling them very matter-of-factly. They're beginning to experience the anxiety that comes with sudden loss, and they have no idea how ramped up this is going to get after they crucify Jesus. This is just the beginning of their birth pains. And he calls us to an involvement, an involvement not just with him, but an involvement with God that calls us. No, no, it compels us, if you will, to be involved with others, just like the Stevens minister who got involved with Jim. And what Jim said, I, I go to church to, to serve now, to be a part, not just to get. You know, the power of the Christian story doesn't come from removing ourselves from the world. Instead, the power of the Christian experience is seen by others through what we experience. We're living epistles of a gospel that is alive and being lived out in and through us. And it's this experience with Jesus, this lifestyle that Christians have, that's responsible for the writing of of the story. And the good news is that it all takes place right in the middle of our lives and right in the middle of the worlds in which we live. In other words, the story gave us our story. And as we live out our lives right in the midst of, right in the midst of life and all of the ugliness that comes with it, the power of God is made evident when His strength is seen as it perfects our weakness. Where we can find comfort, we can find joy, and even the capacity to rejoice (laughs) in extremely difficult times.
So because we are in the world, we have to do the world like everyone else. We have to work. You know, you're looking at a guy, when I went back to seminary, I worked three jobs and had a family of six. You know, it took me five years. I had to, you, you got to work. You got to pay bills. You got to raise your family. You have to deal with tragedy and experience loss and pain and suffering, and you get it. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you get a free pass. But it does mean that you're connected. Everybody say connected. We're connected with God's strength and power from above because He lives in us. But man, we're connected to others too. I don't think I'd have got through seminary if it wasn't for some of my fellow seminarians. You know, we were older guys had gone back to school, and I was sitting there with a friend of mine. He was just he was just getting his undergraduate degree, and it was finals week. And man, it can get stressful sometimes. And uh, every once in a while, I'm known for a really good belly laugh. Sometimes it may happen at a place where it shouldn't happen, but man, when it happens, it just happens. You know, we were sitting at a table, and I'd just taken a sip of coffee, and. Uh, he was telling me, he says, yeah, when I graduate, he says, I'll be at least qualified to sweep the floors in the gymnasium. And I don't know why that struck me so funny, but I'd just taken a sip of coffee. And this is at Old Roberts University where you have to wear a shirt and a tie every, every day when you go to class. And he had this nice white shirt on with this nice blue striped tie. And man, it hit me so funny that I started to laugh and I had a mouthful of coffee and I tried to hold my mouth tighter and as the air built up, my lips just acted as an atomizer and it just showered him. And there were four of us seated at the table and, and then we all just lost control in the cafeteria. We all thought it was so funny and I gave him a $20 bill and told him to take it cleaners and let me know if that worked. If not, I'd buy him a new shirt. It was a time of great stress for us. Three jobs, one of which was pastor in a small church, uh, audiovisual coordinator for a major university, married, four children. But it was my connection with those people who were doing life with me that got me through a lot of it. I mean, they understood me. They got me. They even accepted me with the things about me that they really didn't like. And I think that's one of the great gifts that you get in the body of Christ. Is that there's great diversity and that strength is found in our diversity. But it's also found in our unity. But it's not a unity that comes from ourselves. It's a unity that comes from the one who lives. In each of us. When I hear people say that faith is blind, I just cringe inside. Some of you probably said that. I've said that before. I'm sure a number of you have heard it. And here's, here's why I cringe. Because biblical faith isn't blind. Biblical faith is the assurance of having things hoped for as promised in Scripture. God told these disciples what was going to happen in advance before it ever happened. That's faith. Faith is a direct response 
to the promises of God's Word. So when I find myself facing the uncertainties of life, I I find myself extremely grateful for the promises of God that I've been able to experience, even though our faith is not founded on experience, but founded on the Word. But the experiences that we do have, when based on the promises of God's Word, encourage a living hope that in time gives birth to a faith that grows to become steadfast and true. And that's why the psalmist wrote, taste and see that the Lord is... Yeah. Taste. Get a taste of this. Then when trouble comes, and this passage promises that trouble comes to us all in this side of life. It also promises that God's going to take care of all the things in this life and use them for His glory even when He returns. Every wrong will be righted... And that the temporary sufferings that we go through right now in this world will pale in comparison to the glory of God that will finally be revealed in that day. You know, I've been a minister for a long time. And I've failed at just about everything you can fail at. I've worked hard at trying to train myself to to be intentional about walking with the Lord. Not walking in the Spirit, listening for God's voice. And, and I've heard it a number of times. In fact, one of the, I'm a feeler. It's the way God made me. One of the things that sets my day off, like this morning, as soon as my alarm went off at 6 o'clock, the first thing out of my mouth was, Good morning, Lord. Before I even take a step out of the bed, most of the time, I try to fix my mind steadfast on, on him to empower me for a day that I may have planned, but really he ultimately plans, right? And as good as what I think I've gotten at that sometimes, gosh, I'm so hard-headed and pig-headed, God has to remind me sometimes that I can't do it alone. And it's our stories. I'm in in need of having people in my life who can regularly speak into my life. Who can pray with me. Who can hold me accountable. But most importantly, who just care for me. I mean, they really care about me. Not the preacher me. Me. And that's why I'm such a big believer in the dynamics of small groups. And here at Cedar Hills, we have two ways that you can really get connected and stay plugged in and find a group where you can experience the kind of care and support and encouragement in the midst of life's most difficult storms. And when you're going through those bottom-of-the-barrel emotions, still find hope to rejoice, faith to hang on. You know, I'm bigger in cell groups. The word cell, we're not talking about terrorist cells. It's not a bad thing here. We, We use the word cell here because the human cell 
is the smallest part of the human body that's capable of reproduction. It can reproduce itself. That's what disciples are called to do. We're called to to multiply and to reproduce ourselves. That's what Jesus did with the 12. He poured himself into them so that they would become kingdom representatives to the world and then they were sent out. That's what we do with cells. We try to create venues of like-minded people just like you, birds of a feather. Yeah. So one of the ways that you can connect with the cell, you can get online, you can come and talk to me if you'd like to start one. I'd love to help you get one off the ground. I have all kinds of resources that you can study. And if you want something, we'll order it for you. I want you to check this out. This is the reason cells are important. We live in a generation where the emerging generations are not even considering the church as a viable option. And I guess what I'm telling you is that they're not going to come here. We're called to go to them. So I want you to think about your co-workers, your relatives, the people that you know, the people here that you're sharing worship with this morning. Check this video out. You look out over our congregation and it's just a a cross-section of the real people out there. It's really like being at the grassroots and really hearing the heart of people. We've doubled in size, we've doubled in income. We found out that people didn't really have a problem with God, but they had a problem with the church. And so we had to, we had to redesign in their mind their entire concept of church. People need a place to have ministry, personal ministry. I just, I just want to be safe. Some people have never been safe in their entire lives. There's a lot of hurting people out there. And the deeper you get into this, the more you realize that, that people are really, really hurting. Everybody feels like people have to come to the building in order to become a Christian. We have people that will go to cell group meetings, sometimes up to a year before they ever show up on the church campus. And that's all right. The, the cell group is a channel into the body. They can come as they are. They can eat with you. They can fellowship with you. Yet you still have an opportunity to minister to them. I really desire to see out of the book of Acts the same kind of lifestyle today that I was reading about and studying about, but it wasn't happening in our church. It wasn't happening in my life, and I knew that that something fundamentally had to change. The ministerial pyramid, we keep it uh, so that it, it needs to be reversed. That is, we have a minister, pastor on top, one person, and at the lower base we have a number of people we're functioning requiring the pastor to do a certain number of things, which is exhausting. But we have turned that pyramid around so that the pastor, if you will, feeds into the body, equips the body, and the broad base, if you will, of the cells then do the bulk of the ministry. And that has added, I'm sure, years to the life of the ministers, and it really makes it a joy, for this work should, in fact, be a joy and, and not a burden. I could sow into others, raise up leadership, and watch those leaders raise up other people to extend the pastoral ministry, the care for God's people, that I don't have to do all of the pastoral caring, that the body ministers to the body. The work of the ministry is doing the stuff. We see a difference between preaching and pastoring. Now people can be discipled in a way that's going to cause them to grow and be able to disciple others. We're producing leaders rather than maintaining followers. We have created spiritual leaders. They have given us the leadership and we have given them the ministry. They see themselves as that vital and that equipped 
that they're ministers of Jesus Christ, just like the guy preaching the sermon. My role um, in the church is not to just sit and be uh, ministered to, but to be the one who ministers to others. People who just uh, used to sit in the pew, oh. now they're, they're on the battlefield. That's right. We are all conquerors. We are um, agents of the kingdom, we call ourselves. We are dangerous to the enemy. I have backed away from doing professional ministry, and I'm sort of the coach for the people. Uh, we help them solve their ministry problems now because they've taken the ministry themselves. Do you remember in Exodus where Jethro uh, told his, his son-in-law Moses, you need to empower others, groups of 10, groups of 50, groups of 100, groups of 1,000. And so that pleased the heart of God for 3 million people to be better pastored. In Belmont, a leader is 75 years old, they're 24 years old, they're black, they're white, they're male, they're female. Uh, they're, they're PhDs, they're maybe high school educated. Mm -hmm. The people in the group all feel equally able to go and minister on their own level to their own environment. I never thought it was my role, maybe. That was the church's role, and I am the church. Exciting stuff. We are the church, empowered to provide care to one another. We don't do life alone. We do it together. I want to encourage you, if you come to Cedar Hills, if this is your home, or maybe you're here and you're considering this your home, if you need a Stevens minister, call the office, contact one of us pastors. We'll get that process started for you. If you'd like to be a part of a cell, you can call the church office and call me, ask to talk with Pastor J.R., or go online and check out the cells that we have going and find one that meets on the night that you're, you're available and attend and visit one. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, this morning we come before you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, uh, Lord, you created us to be and to function as the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you that even though in this world that you promised tribulation, you also promise us that you've overcome it. And you encourage us to not live in fear of it. So Lord, I pray for your peace that passes all understanding to reign in the hearts of your people. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said.